If you've got your Bible while everyone's making their way out, if you can open to the book of John so long. Uh, John, John chapter 20. We're going to have a look at that verse a little bit later. John chapter 20. You're welcome to take all the toys with you and go play in the foyer. It'll be great. Don't worry. We're right there. We're playing with uh, Sam, uh, Sam Smith out there earlier on um, while you guys were worshiping. Got the most contagious laugh ever. I had to step out quickly and he was ready for a, for a tickle. And I walked up and I was like about to tickle him. I thought he'd run. He was like, yeah, come and take me. Good place to play inside there. Um, our deacons can show you where the mom's room is as well. I want to ask you a question this morning, a couple of questions as the disciples started questioning themselves. Every time we come together and think about the death of Jesus on the cross, it provokes questions for us. In this one of here, there was this one act on history and one moment for you, Jesus on the cross, and what does it mean? The Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan says this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet, to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Ask this further question. If it were possible, with some kind of uh, supermagnet to pull up out of our culture every part of our cultures that have been shaped or impacted by the life of Jesus how much of what we know to be culture and normal would be left ask you that question Jesus came and he told a simple story and the story was this the kingdom of heaven is here and if you put your trust in me you can have life forever and then he goes to the cross and dies and his disciples are going he said that he'd live forever he told us we would live forever but now he's dead Three days later, like he said, he rises from the dead again. And for 20 centuries, people have been trying to prove that wrong. For 20 centuries, people have been trying to prove that what happened 2,000 years ago was wrong. What happens if it wasn't? What happens if it's all true? Today you sit here, you may be skeptical. Today you, uh, you sit here and you might not have any faith at all. Today you might have come here just to please your parents because they come and once a year you come over Easter and Good Friday and you're asking questions as well. I'm so glad you came. And I'm so glad you're exploring faith. And I'll ask you this question. What happens if what everybody else in this building is saying is true? What happens if it is? What happens if it's not false? What happens if there is life on the other side? Let's distill it into an easy way to understand. Let's say you and I, we only knew life inside this building. right? We'd never been outside. We'd never ever opened up the curtains to see what's on the other side. We'd never opened the doors before. Sometimes, you know, like you're like, Matt, you preach these long sermons. We know what that feels like. Never to leave this place. But imagine this is all we knew. And suddenly, some crackpot gets up and says, hey, everyone, there's life outside here. And we're all like, oh, don't be stupid. There's, what are you talking There's life outside here. Yes, there's life outside here. Because I fell over and I thought I was dead, but I saw the light coming out from under the door. And, and there's, there's something on the other side. And we're like, oh, rubbish. What would it take for you to believe 
that there's something outside these walls? Well, I think it would take somebody who is on the outside to come in and tell you, right? Somebody would need, it won't help if I tell you that because I only know life inside you. It won't help for you to tell the person next to you because they only know life inside you. Somebody would have to come from the outside and come in and say, hey, hey, Sterling, there's life outside you. We've got these things called cars and cell phones and laptops and it's wonderful. There's DSTV and Facebook and you know what? You don't have to only drink grape juice and white bread. There's rye bread and cheese and red wine and it's wonderful out there. And you go, oh, well, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know. How do, we, how do we know? They'd have to come tell us in our language. How about this? How about someone inside gets pulled outside and then they come back and they go, hey, I went outside. There's something out there. And then they came back and told us, would we believe them? Well, how about Jesus? He said, before Abraham... I am. And he comes from eternity past into time. And then he says, I'm going out. And three days later, I'm coming back in again. He goes out. Three days later, he comes back in again. And then he teaches what it's like to have life, what real life is. And then he says to his disciples, guys, I'm going again. But I'll be back. And every single time we gather in this place and we worship him and we sense his presence, he comes back. Every time a sinner falls on their knees and says, God, forgive me, I want to live for you, Jesus comes back. Every time you open the scriptures and you read it and you go, this is so for me, Jesus, how do you know I'd be experiencing this today? Jesus comes back every time. Comes into this world and he teaches about eternal life. He says he's going to go to eternal life. He comes back again. He says, let me tell you about eternal life. He says, in eternal life, there's no more crying and there's no more pain. And guess what? It's not enough to just have talk. I don't know about you, but I, I, talk is cheap. If you just have a look at the news and you see what politicians promise, talk is cheap, friends. It must be backed up with something. Jesus comes into the world and he says, before Abraham, I am. He says this whole world was created through me. And then he backs it up by walking on the water of creation. He says, I want you to know what eternal life is like. In eternal life, there's no more crying and no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more tears. And he comes in and he heals those who are sick. He says, I want you to know what eternal life is like. It's this great banquet. It's this great meal. And he comes back and he feeds the 5,000 when they have nothing. He says, in eternal life, there's no one who feels out. There's one tribe. There's one tribe. No one feels alone and no one feels separate and no nation feels separate to other nations. We're one. We become one. He comes into this world and he puts his arm around the leper. No one else does that. They stone the leper. They chase him away. They chase him with sticks. Jesus goes and he puts his arm around the leper and he heals him. The leper walks away having had diseased hands and a diseased scarred face and he walks away being healed. Jesus backs up what he said about eternal life. He backed it up with action. And I want you to know, friends, that we can trust Jesus. Because here's the thing. We would need someone to rely on, but not just someone who has a, has a story to tell. We want to know, does his action back up his story? And 
Jesus had a story to tell and his action backed up his story. And so his disciples, when the sword was placed at their neck and they were told, you need to deny the fact that this man rose from the dead. Okay, this is causing some issues now. They went, you know what? We will slide our own neck on your sword because we know this to be true. Because this is not a problem anymore. He told us there's eternal life. You take this tent now, I get a mansion when I open my eyes. Jesus said to his followers, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will come back. And I will take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to where I'm going. But if this was true, not only would we need somebody to come tell us, not only would they have to back it up, back up what they're saying with action, but seriously, folks, if that was true, it should impact mankind forever, right? I mean, this can't just be something that, we, that just adds another religion to the, 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 the pantheon of world's religions, right? It must be something more. So let's place a super magnet over culture and see what it says. One of the books I shared with you was John Ortberg and He's one of those who's done great work on this. But let me share with you some of, some of the ideas. What would an event like the cross mean for mankind? John Ortberg said this. He said that it turns out that the life of Jesus is a comet with an exceptionally long tail. Imagine this tail of a comet. It goes through everything. Let's think about children. Okay, so some of you have children. We know that you have children. I can see the blank spaces around you. We go to a PTA. And you get told at a PTA, this is kind of how you discipline your children. You were always looking for that. Your parent course, we're all there. Biggest question in a parenting course. It's not like, how many times do we feed our kids? It's a discipline. How do I discipline my kids? I know, because I'm the one who has to answer. It's not my kids, it's your kids. You're the ones asking the questions, right? Here's how you dealt with it in the ancient world. You took your child up a hill, you chained him to a pole, and you left him there to die. And then you went down and started again. I know you're like, oh, rubbish, Matthew. I promise you it'd be true. Go and research it for yourself. That's how children were treated in those days. No one cared about children. No one cared about babies. You fell pregnant and you didn't want to keep it, you just threw it in a river. You didn't care. Your child backchatted you, you stoned him to death. Or you cut his head off. Or you could kill her. You could do whatever you want. That's how children were dealt with. How does Jesus respond? Jesus pulls up a chair and he goes, hey, let these children come and sit on my lap. What are his disciples doing at that time? Hey, kids, go away. Why are they doing that? They're doing what their culture said. Chase them away. Why do our cultures love children? Why do our cultures have orphanages? Why do our cultures treat children well? Why do we look after our children and try to shape them and mold them? Do you think we came up with that on our own? No, no. That came from Jesus who said, if you cause one of these to stumble, you may as well have a millstone tied around your neck. And thrown into the middle of the sea. What about education? What about the way that we are taught? I know some of you are like, ah, oh, please, you're not going to claim this. No, but what I am going to say this is that the desire to study God's word caused the birth of monasteries. And in these monasteries, men uh, would study the scriptures and they would go, hey, I want to understand more about this area of Jerusalem. And they would start studying geography or they would start studying more about the sciences and more about biology. Why? Because they so hungered to learn about God. And the greatest universities, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, they all came from Christians 
who started those universities. In America, there was a desire to, to educate the colonies, and so they provided state-funded education for the colonies. It was called this, the Old Deluder Satan Act. And the Old Deluder Satan Act was based on this notion that no child should grow up ignorant. The desire to give children a free education and teach children how to read and write was started by people who had this understanding that to keep people ignorant is essentially sinful. People need to have knowledge. And universal literacy is something that the world holds very highly. Where did that come from? It has Christian roots. So we could pull out education. We could pull out of that the way we treat children. But what about compassion and justice? Like, oh, obviously, Matthew, that's an obvious one. Okay, but well, let's just think about it. Jesus had concern for those who suffered. Jesus noticed those who, had, who were suffering. Jesus, in the middle of a crowd, there's a woman who has an issue of blood. She touches his cloak. He's touching everybody in the crowd. He's bumping into everyone. He recognizes the one who needed a touch from him. He notices the man in the tree. He notices the leper on the side. He notices scared disciples in a boat. And he calls them and says, come and follow me. His concern for those who suffered. The Council of Nyssa, it decreed this, that wherever a cathedral was built, there had to be a hospice at the same place. You can't just go, they told their bishops, and build beautiful churches. You build churches and hospice at the same time. Imagine that. Imagine we, we're dreaming of planting churches, so let's go build a church and... Oh, by the way, we're going to build a hospital as well. Those hospices would become hospitals. God's people were, were told, uh, or God's people had a reputation for uh, going through this great world and looking for opportunities to help people. Christians, as, as the, the Romans were leaving Rome because of the plague, the Christians were running in. What about humility? In the ancient world, humility was not something that was held high. You had to be courageous and full of wisdom. Cicero said rank needs to be persevere or preserved so why is it that business books today are teaching ceos of company companies to practice altruistic love towards their employees and the companies why do we have that it comes from jesus humility was taught by jesus this carpenter who was on a cross who died more than two thousand years ago there were three men who died that day one was jesus the other one was remember his name doesn't matter. The third one, his name was, do you remember his name? Ever wondered why? Ever wondered why we don't remember the names of 66.6% .6 of the people who died on a cross that day, but we remember the name of Jesus? You ever wondered why? Even in his death, he so radically impacted people's lives that today we still remember his name and don't have a clue what the other guy's names were. But we know his. This man who challenged leaders to be humble. But what about forgiveness? You see, in the ancient world, you would reward your friends and you would, you would be ruthless towards your enemies. Jesus turned it around. He said, no, no, forgive your enemies. Pray for them. And then he backed up his speech on the cross while he's hanging there. He looks at the Roman soldier who nailed his hands into the cross. And instead of calling down curses like the two men next to him, whose names we don't know, he looks at them and he says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Listen, I don't know about you. But when I get pushed into a corner, often I don't respond the way I say I'd respond when I'm not in the corner. 
It's easy to say that I've got lots of patients driving down Deborah Avenue. But on a Friday afternoon when I'm in a rush and I'm gunning down Deborah Avenue and people are kind of in front of me and I can't get through the red robot. I mean, green robot. I can't get through the green robot because people are cutting me off. Man, I respond in ways that I don't normally respond when the road is open. Do you? Imagine how you and I would have responded if we got nailed to the cross by people we were trying to help. I get nailed to the cross. I don't think I'd be going, Jesus, Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But Jesus backed it up. Forgiveness. For this reason, for that reason, Nelson Mandela was able to say, as I walked out the door towards the gates that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness behind and my hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. For that reason, he's able to tell people, hey, Forgiveness liberates the soul. That wasn't his idea. That was Jesus. What about humanitarian reform? <laughs> Friends, there's a time where, where women were scorned. Ladies, you wouldn't be allowed to sit in this building. We put you outside. We, men, we put you outside. Any children, we put you outside as well. If you're a slave or a low-end worker, you get outside as well. This place is only for the elite. It's only for the elite. There's an ancient text that instructed the bishops that when, when the wealthy and the elite came in, you don't greet them, but you greet the slave and you sit next to the slave. You sit on the floor, they sit on the chair, and you engage with them, bishops. Where did that come from? That came from Jesus. That came from Jesus, who God's word says, when you become a Christian, there's no slave or free or male or female or rich or poor or Jew or Gentile anymore. Things have changed. That came from Jesus. The fact that we hate slavery so much today came from Jesus. The ancient world, slavery was a norm. It was no problem to just walk down the road and wipe out a city and take their people as your slaves. That's what you did. You know, you don't, you don't go buy a lawnmower. You just go and you take over a city and take some slaves. That cut the grass for you. It was that simple. What about civil government? Jesus said, the authorities, I put them. So pray for them. Pray for them. That's what you need to do. Well, before the Christian faith, it was possible for those who were in government to just wipe out the whole city or the whole village. They don't like you. They want to plant their fields over there. So the rich nobles would just come in and wipe out your whole city. You go out into the land and you're busy chopping your three millies down and you come back and the whole village is gone. And what can you do about that? Nothing. Because you're down there and they're up there and you can do nothing about it. But in 1215, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in order to settle a dispute between the barons and the rich king, he came up with a code of how we're going to deal with things. It became known as the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta, written in 1215, would eventually become the foundation for the British law system. It would become the basis of the American Constitution. It would become the basis of civil rights. It would become the basis of the freedoms that we enjoy today. It became the basis of democracy. It was written by a Christian. Even our civil government has been changed and the sciences were changed. Everyone from Galileo to Einstein, Christ, uh, men who, who saw that God had created and we want to understand more about that. Friends, science and God, does not, is not in, it's not two different issues. The more you know God, the more you'll understand science. And the more you understand science, the more you understand God. Einstein said something like that. The arts, how God changed the arts. Do you remember when you see pictures of primal primal people and the art that they had. Think of a totem pole. Totem pole? No, no, totem pole. Think of the pictures on the totem pole. Angry faces. Jesus comes in. Art changes. Now you don't have anger. You don't have people going to war with pictures of death on their shields. Now you have people going to war with the sun on a shield and a cross on a shield. 
art changed. Francis Schaeffer explained how before Jesus, music was mainly played in minor keys. Did you know that? I didn't. I don't even know what a minor key is. Apparently he did. I didn't. After Jesus, music started getting played with minors and majors. Because Jesus brings wholeness, not just to us. The gospel changes everything. Not just your life and my life, but it changed the arts. It changed music. But perhaps the most remarkable thing that we can all think about is simply this. Is that Jesus' ability to withstand the failings of his followers, who from the very beginning probably got more in his way than helped him. There's so many groups that call themselves after Jesus. You have Jews for Jesus, you have Muslims for Jesus, you have ex-Masons for Jesus, you have riders for Jesus, you have bikers for Jesus, you have surfers for Jesus. All these people going for Jesus. Friends, what does this mean for you? What does it mean for me? It doesn't only change mankind, but it changes you and it changes me. Friends, if, we, if we're going to grab onto this, we need to know that it can change something in your life and change something in mine. Jesus doesn't just change out there. He changes us here as well. That one moment, that one act, is still changing lives today. And he says this. He says, you can know. You can know that you have this life. I've come that you may know. And how do I grab onto this? Jesus said this, if you believe in me, you will have life. If you believe in me, you will have life. Jesus didn't come, and I see this picture of like, imagine God taking Jesus, and he's this, Jesus would be this huge rock, and he drops it into this pool. It's the pool of history. It didn't just make a little drop, bloop, and then over. It caused a huge splash in the pool of time. And those, those ripples are still going out today. They change your life, they change mine. You can be the greatest atheist in the building today. I just want you to know, whether you like it or not, Jesus made your life good. Whether you like it or not, next time you're sick and you go to a doctor, thank Jesus. That was his idea. Next time you, you're driving down the street and, and somebody drives you into your car and the police arrive and they sort out the issue, thank Jesus. That was his idea. He did that. But more than that, he offers us life. He says to you, this life will end in death. But after that, there's life. But there's something you need to do. You need to believe. What does that mean? I need to repent and I need to put my trust in Jesus. And so for you today, for some of you, you've done that. Here's an opportunity for you to just say, thank you, Jesus, that you have radically changed my life. Thank you that your grace extended to me before I even knew you, even more so when I did. For some of you, perhaps your thought is, Jesus, how do I give my life over to you? How do I get this more life? The Bible just simply says, come and agree with him that you've sinned against him and ask him to forgive you. It's one step away. I'm going to ask John and Anthea if they'll uh, just come and lead us in this. They're not going to lead us as singing. They're just going to sing the song uh, as we close out. Consider it. It's not, a, it's not a slow song. Actually, it's a little bit vibey, which is great because Jesus said, I'm giving you life. And in that life, it's going to be a party. All right? It's not this kind of morbid thing. But I'm going to ask Anthea and John if they'll lead this the song and the words will be behind me take a look at them and then i'm going to close off after that but let's just reflect on what this means this new life that we were given in jesus and how close it is that we could grab hold of it uh this morning thanks and thanks john